Uh, with that, let's turn to uh, Romans uh, chapter 1. Uh, we want to look at verses 24, 24 through 32. Uh, and of course, uh, as we come to this section of Scripture, uh, it's a hot-button issue. Um, and you'll know as we're reading through this what we're talking about. But it's important um, that we do talk about it because the Bible talks about it. It's amazing, isn't it, how relevant the Bible is? Absolutely incredible. It speaks to all the different issues and things that are going on, not only in our world, but personally, you know, in our lives. And so Paul, uh, writing here in Romans chapter 1, if you need a Bible, raise your hand. We have some in the back. We'll get one to you. Uh, He writes, therefore, verse 24, God also gave them up to uncleanness in the lust of their hearts to dishonor their bodies among themselves, who exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. And for this reason, God gave them up to vile passions. For even their women exchanged the natural use for what is against nature. Likewise, also the men, leaving the natural use of the woman, burned in their lust for one another, men with men, committing what is shameful, and receiving in themselves the penalty of their error, which was due. And even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, God gave them over to a debased mind, and to do those things which are not fitting, And being filled with all unrighteousness, sexual immorality, wickedness, covetousness, maliciousness, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, evil-mindedness, they are whisperers, backbiters, haters of God, violent, proud boasters, inventors of evil things, disobedient to parents, undiscerning, untrustworthy, unloving, unforgiving, unmerciful. Wow, what a list, huh? Who, knowing the righteous judgment of God, that those who practice such things are deserving of death, not only do the same, but approve of those who practice them. With that, let's pray. Lord, after that list, we need to pray. And Lord, we realize, Lord, as we look out on our world, would somebody answer that, please? And Father, we... uh, We thank you that you've given us truth. We thank you, Lord, for the Holy Spirit. For, Lord, as we read these things, we don't stand as those this morning who would would say that we're not even capable of that, for we are, Lord. Lord, we're very capable of all those things. We've demonstrated that. But we thank you, Lord, for your saving grace. Thank you that you reached down, Lord, into our particular situation. Lord, you lifted us out of a pit. You set us at your banqueting table and your banner over us is love. Lord, we do thank you for the cross today. Lord, thank you that, Lord, you not only took our judgment, Lord, you assumed the place and, Lord, took our punishment. And, Lord, uh, that's that's how you settled the matter. That's your justice, Lord, that you came and died for your creation. 
And that, Lord, as you have risen from the grave, that you now, Lord, will give your precious Holy Spirit to anyone, Lord, who will believe in you. And, Lord, that's the only reason why we don't do those things or continue in those things. And if we do, Lord, we thank you that you, have, you forgive us. We, we thank you for the blessed power that you have granted and given to your church and to those who have believed in the name of Jesus Christ. Lord, we've got a great message. Lord, the world in so many respects is hopeless. Lord, stuck in their sin, not knowing of any way out. But Lord, we thank you that through the gospel, Lord, through the good news, through the message of salvation, Lord, to those who will believe and put their faith and trust in you, that, Lord, you provide an abundant way out. And we thank you for that today. We thank you that your gospel, your good news, has been changing lives, Lord, over these last 2,000 years. And you're changing lives today. And, Lord, I pray that as we come this morning to this place to worship you, that in any area, Lord, we need to change. Lord, change us. Lord, we don't want to be self-satisfied. Lord, we don't want to look down our noses at people. Lord, we realize that some of the things we see going on in our society and culture out there, that, that there we would go, except for your grace. So, Heavenly Father, we pray that, Lord, we might have open hearts, that you would speak to us, Lord. And, Father, we do, we pray for our nation, oh God. Such polarization, such division. But Lord, you are the liberator. You are the emancipator. You are the one who can set us free from our, our biases. Lord, areas that in our humanity, Lord, where the life and heart can be full of hatred. Lord, when you come, you're the Prince of Peace. And you come, Lord, you bring your peace, you bring your power, you bring your purity. You bring all those things, Lord, into our lives. And Father, we thank you for that. And Lord, we commit this time to you. We ask you, Lord, to bless, Lord, uh, and give us, I pray, Father, a, a particular uh, understanding of these matters, Lord, um, that we might be able to, Lord, impact our culture that is so immersed Lord, um, entangled in many of these very issues that we read about in the Bible. So we thank you that you're the God of hope. You're the God of help. We come to you now. We ask it in Jesus' name, amen. Well, last time, uh, particularly pointing to verse 18 uh, in this chapter, we talked about the wrath of God. And how, you know, not, not the wrath of God at the end of time, but how that presently, that wrath, would be expressed. And the way that it is expressed is God removes his restraining power. That, that's what he does. Um, you know, uh, when you think about uh, many of the things that are going on in our world today, I, I think I, that's one of the things I see about America. Um, as, you know, people basically have rejected God and the witness of God and the word of God and, and, and so on and so forth. 
uh, that God just picks, he backs off. He, he takes his hand off, just like a loving parent sometimes. Like, like a loving parent can't do anything. If you've ever been in that place as a parent sometimes, your kids grow up and they kind of rebel. You just simply can't do anything. And, and that's sort of the position of God. Uh, when we talk about his wrath. And remember the word we use, it was in the passive uh, voice there, and the word that we used there uh, was basically God's displeasure, that he was exasperated, just like anyone else in a sense could be exasperated by something wicked and so forth taking place, and maybe in the life of maybe a loved one. Um, and, and so what happens is, is after God takes off his restraining power, that people will suffer now the consequences of their decisions. Um, and it's interesting, too, because we, we, we alluded to this last week, how, you know, when humanity will basically, um, and this has happened since the fall of man, you know, peace, you know, basically, you know, the thing is, you know, God, you, you know, stay out of my life. I don't want anything to do with God. Uh, I can remember uh, uh, back uh, 20, maybe 20 years ago, it's kind of a statement that kind of stuck in my mind. Um, and it was sort of a metaphor, but it was something that took place, that was, that was basically, uh, an issue, and I think there was a protest outside of uh, the Capitol and so forth uh, relative to abortion, um, and, you know, both, you know, both parties were there, the, the, the pro-aborts and the, and the life party, and I remember one of the signs in particular, uh, and it was directed specifically from a Catholic standpoint to Catholics, uh, but it had a deeper truth, and, and it said, keep your rosaries off my ovaries, and basically what it was saying is keep your religion, you know, keep, keep, you know, uh, keep your God out of my particular life. Uh, and that's, we see that, we, we understand that. We look at, uh, you know, that our, our culture is always in a sense, you know, and again, it's happened really since the fall. But it's interesting also, too, that when, you know, a person's own, you know, prerogative and their decisions have fallen apart uh, and their life begins to implode, they turn around and blame God. And you talk about an unfairness, that that is a gross unfairness, that when somebody's whose own decisions, uh, their own choices, um, you know, them wanting to be autonomous uh, and independent of God, that when things really, life gets messed up, they simply turn around and they blame God. Absolutely unfair, because they don't realize, and again, that's the, the darkness that happens in, in you know, sin and immorality. Uh, the understanding, and that's one of the things that we see here uh, in our text. And of course, we know as we look at American society, we realize it is in a culture war. But see, the first casualty, first and foremost casualty uh, in a culture war is truth. Um, and that's why Jesus said, you know, relative to the truth, when we know the truth, and he's not talking about the scientific truth, but he's talking about the truth of Scripture, uh, spiritual truth. And when we know that, it sets us free. Uh, and when we observe that, it not only sets us free, it keeps us free. And, uh, but, you know, when the truth is exchanged, and that's one of the things that we've been talking about here in, this, in the, the context of Romans 1, uh, is when the truth is, ex is basically exchanged for a lie, there's an instant downward trend that takes place, you know, in a person's life uh, or actually in the life of a culture. And that's where basically moral depravity begins. And it always will express itself. Right? You see this right from the very beginning, uh, at the dawn of history, uh, as the Bible speaks about these issues all the way back in Genesis, that basically uh, moral depravity begins and it also expresses itself in some type of sexual impurity. And, and as we look at today's climate in our world, we realize that all things sexual become enshrined. Uh, sex has become one of the gods, you know, of our age. 
Uh, but it's been very devastating, the cost of the, you know, the sexual uh, revolution that started uh, back when I was a teenager in the 1960s. Uh, it's had tremendous devastation and impact, not only in our culture, in our society, but we see also, too, around the world. Now, at the outset of this message, I want to very clearly state this, that I have no desire whatsoever to beat up those who are struggling with homosexuality. It's a very big issue, you know, out there in our culture and out there in our society. Um, and I think sometimes, uh, you know, they become the brunt um, and uh, there's oftentimes uh, an adversarial relationship, you know, between, uh, you know, the church, you know, uh, and, you know, the homosexual community. And particularly, I think, more so on their side as they maybe perhaps view us uh, and our views. So I, I don't, I'm not here to beat up on, on homosexuals or those who have same-sex attraction. But it's important as we declare the truth, the truth will simply set us free. And one of the things that we see as we look at this chapter, it deals with heterosexual sin as well, not just homosexual sin. So I think sometimes it's unfair just to sort of pick that out, um, you know, and, and basically, um, you know, target, you know, that particular group and that particular sin. Now, it's interesting that the Bible simply shouts out to us that all sin, basically, and sexual sin as well, is forgivable. Amen? Yes. You know, the Bible says if we confess our sins... Uh, that he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins, and what? And to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. But th there is, there is a, uh, a, a, um, a condition there. We've got to confess. That, that's the thing. That's the thing so oftentimes we struggle with, um, you know, regarding any sin that we might have. As we, if we will confess it. He's faithful, and he's just, and he will forgive it, and he will not only that, but he gives us a new beginning. He, can, he, can, he has power uh, as we trust him to cleanse us and to give us victory uh, in these things. Now, as we look at verse, uh, we're going to pick it up in verse uh, 26. And this has been in this uh, chapter here, uh, the second mention of God giving, God giving man over. Uh, basically, again, I just want to emphasize God giving people over to the things they demand. People, human, humanity, he, they, you know, we want our autonomy. We want our independence. Um, and I'll tell you what, that's a difficult thing sometimes for us, you know, as Americans, you know, as we really do come to Christ. Uh, it, we do have to turn over the control of our lives. We do have to turn over that independent, you know, and in America, man, we put, you know, all this emphasis on freedom and that sort of thing. But isn't it interesting uh, when you consider absolute freedom, look how it destroys people. Th their ability and the, and the wherewithal, this, the resources they have, you know, to, to basically in their freedom make choices, but some of those choices can bring you into bondage. And that's what we see going on basically in our world today. Um, and he says here in verse 26, for this reason, uh, God gave them up to vile passions, for even their women exchanged the natural use uh, for what, uh, what is against nature, nat uh, nature rather. So from the, from the creator's perspective, these passions, these desires, they're basically, uh, they're not normal, not in the realm of normal uh, when we talk about this matter of homosexuality. It, it basically goes over the norm of basically what we would call normal, and the Bible here is referring to it as vile passions. It's simply because why they're against nature. Uh, I mean, okay, if you, if you extrapolate it out, if everybody in the world was a homosexual, um, we all die. 
Okay? We can't, we can't propagate the race. And, and God has you know, designed, you know, when we talk about uh, um, you know, God's design for marriage, where do we find that? We, we don't find it in the culture. We find it in the Bible. And when we subscribe to God's truth that's in the Bible, he brings blessing. And that's not just in this particular area, uh, but in all areas. And particularly as we're speaking about, you know, sexual things here, um, you know, the thing about sexual sin is, you know what, uh, and it's true with any sin, but, but it brings confusion. It brings confusion. And that's what we see kind of going on in our culture, in our society today. There's a lot of confusion about these things. One of the, one of the, one of the big issues of our time and our day is this thing that we call gender confusion. And, and it has reached down to even touch, um, you know, the young children, you know, in our culture, in our society. And, and I told you this before, uh, as my, Margie and I first got married, uh, we had one son, and, and my determination was, we're not having any more. We're not having any more. And it was based on this reason. I don't really know how to bring my kids up. But as soon as Christ came into my life, that question was answered. That's why we have five kids. <laughs> and 12 grandkids. And I always say, I hope we're not holding. I want more grandkids. I love those little buggers. Verse 27. Likewise also the men leaving the natural use of the woman burn in their lust for one another. Men with men committing what is shameful, receiving in themselves the penalty of their error which was due. Many families, including Christian families today, have been impacted by a loved one who has declared basically and announced their homosexuality. So many different, so many families have relatives and, and close loved ones, even in this church, where there has been that announcement. And I've seen three different responses, generally speaking. There, there may be others, but I've seen three different responses to when that kind of thing happens because um, when that happens in a Christian context with a Christian family, uh, there's a lot of hurt, uh, there's a lot of pain, there's a lot of soul-searching that takes place. And I've seen, a, again, generally three different announcements, um, or responses, rather. And it's, the first one is this one, total rejection with disgust. Because they feel that this is a shameful, you know, matter, an issue kind of thing. And sometimes I've seen with this kind of reaction, it's a cutting off. Don't let your shadow ever darken this home again. That kind of response. Then there's another response, and that's full acceptance based on the mores of the culture. It's the new norm. And you'll hear things like this. You know, it's time to get rid of the Puritan values. Because that's the thing you'll find out about morality in our culture. It's constantly morphing. And, it, and it's not always been like that. But we find it is today. Even back in the 70s when, well, I just referred to, I wasn't sure exactly how to raise our children because of the tectonic um, shift in our culture that began to take place, particularly, you know, 
uh, in the 70s, where our Supreme Court even you know, voted to allow abortion. Here's the third response. A non-acceptance of the lifestyle, but a loving compassion for the person. And I think that's where we come in. I think it's very important. I think that if we have that kind of thing going on, and, and many of us do, I think it's important for us that we keep the door open for dialogue. Yes, we, we, need to, we, we, we can state, we can sit down, I think, in a, and it shouldn't be a heated atmosphere. And if it is, let it be on the other side. Because usually when it happens within the context of our Christian families, they already know how we feel about it. That's why a lot of times it's announced through an email or over the phone, not face-to-face. I think our reaction, our response is important. There's such a high failure rate in homosexual relationships. And we need to let them know that even though we disagree with their decision, that as a person we respect them and love them, even though we don't agree with the behavior, with the conduct. From, for, on a personal note, if I were, and this is me, I'm not telling you you have to do this, but this is me. If one of my children were to announce, or one of my grandchildren, because all my children are married, one of my grandchildren were to announce that they are making a choice for that lifestyle they're going to be married to somebody of the same sex. I would not attend. I couldn't. Attendance for me would be a condoning. And I've talked with some folks that have had to make these same decisions. And it wasn't, I've had to make a decision similar to that. I don't want to, I don't want to, I don't want to mention it specifically, but I had, I've had to make a decision similarly like that. You can ask me when I'm out of the pulpit. I've had to make a decision, a difficult decision similar to that regarding somebody in, in, in our family. It was a celebration I could not attend. And it was an important one. And I think just as we perhaps will respect their decisions, they need to respect our decisions as well. And it's not that I don't love them. I love Christ more. And we, we have to be faithful to what we know to be true. Because when we're dealing with this, we're talking about this kind of issue today, it is filled with emotional drama. And we can't make decisions, folks, that are based on emotions. Amen. 
I think any sexual relationship um, is based, if it's just based on that, it's based on a lie. And that's why there is a high failure rate. And I think also, too, I think when you look at the end of verse 27, I think there's a, re- a warning here relative to the consequences of living a life of sexual license. There's consequences. There's, there's a penalty. Now, in verse 28, <clears throat> he reminds us that when God is squeezed out of the life, you know, out of the culture, that, that the psyche, the mind, it becomes debased. It basically becomes diluted in some kind of way. I mean, this could even happen to a Christian. When you move away from biblical truth, just stop reading your Bible for a while. Stop adhering to biblical instruction and truth. I mean, Satan is, Satan is even so clever that he creates what seem to be pseudo-Christian principles and tries to get them into the church. The Bible warns us against that, doesn't he? You know, false teaching. He says, even when they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, God gave them over to a debased mind and to do those things which are not fitting, that is, are proper. So, so here what's hap- what happens, uh, and, and Baxter, I think, touched on it, a Puritan pastor, when he said this, that when the heart and life is given over to one sin, it prepares the heart for another degree of sin. And what happens in the mind here, what, what the Scripture is basically telling us, uh, is very simply that the mind and heart and life becomes open game for anything. And I've told you this before, not because I had any science on it, and it's my opinion. If this goes, if if the culture goes the way it does for a few more decades, what's going to be on the table is pedophilia. I am telling you, that's going to be on the table. Once we opened up the Pandora's box, and change the definition of marriage. It's only a matter of time before we have plural marriage. Where you can have multiple partners. Like the Mormons have been doing. For the last 150 years or whenever they started. Once you change the definition, you open it up to anything and everything. And the question is regarding the matter of homosexuality, is it nature or is it nurture? In other words, have people been born like that, with that kind of tendency? Here's what the Bible says. That's why the Bible refers to it as sin. It's learned behavior. And it becomes all the more, I think, open when it becomes culturally acceptable. And I think that's the danger for our children, our young children. I think, I think when you deem something hereditary, like, like for instance, within the psychological world, you'll hear certain things are diseases. 
where the Bible says they're not diseases. They're just sinful behavior. But when you make them hereditary, the problem is, is you take away hope of change. See, here's the beauty of the Bible. You can change. You can turn from that. God will give you a new beginning. God will cleanse you. And there's such hope in the gospel. And it's something you will not hear on the news when they are communicating to you or wherever you hear it. The incredibly high suicide rate in the homosexual community. It's sad. It's sad. doesn't need to be. You see, God has rescued many people out of that lifestyle. Have you ever heard of Rosario Butterfield? She was a tenured professor in Syracuse University. Uh, she was at the forefront of um, lesbian activism. She had such a resentment for all things biblical and Christians. But there was a Presbyterian pastor and his wife that had a home somewhere in the area of uh, Syracuse University. And it was a home that was just simply open all the time. And through their influence and the love of the body of Christ, God turned this woman's life around. I just want to read you. Uh, I have two different excerpts here. It's a great story. She says... When I lived as a lesbian activist, I had been in a lesbian relationship for some years. I very much thought that this is who I am and this is how I want to live. Uh, when I started writing my post-tenure book, it was on the religious right. And the people they supposed, that the people uh, they supposedly hated, like me. And I got to know a neighbor by Ken Smith, this was the pastor, uh, who was also a conservative uh, Presbyterian pastor, uh, and what was striking was that his home looked a lot like my home. And among my circles in New York in the 1990s, during the AIDS crisis, uh, somebody's home was open every night of the week. And there was a lot going on. The community had to gather together, and not by invitation only, because this was a crisis. This, this, was, an, this was an emergency, and we called ourselves family. And I thought that was unique to the gay community, but it wasn't, because Ken Smith's community was like this too. Ken Smith's community gathered at, this, at his house at all hours. I learned this because he invited me in. And for two years, I was loved and welcomed by a Christian community that I mocked, despised, and rejected. I accepted them when it worked for me, and I rejected them at other times. There is simply no way I would have walked into a church if I had not uh, had a genuine friendship with the man behind the pulpit. And I think one of the points that, that uh, she is making here it's the importance, there's a lot of people, not just, you know, lesbians or homosexual men that won't come into a church, okay? But, you know, our lives touch them. And to reach out to them, this is really a great story here to me of the church, you know, reaching beyond the borders, you know, of the church itself. And uh, he says, for two years, she says, for two years, I was part of Ken and Floyd Smith's ministry. I met with them once a week at their home. The, the door was wide open. People were always in and out of the house. People from church, people not from the church. 
there was heated, genuine conversation uh, that would happen. People would speak honestly and tears would flow. It was a, di- it was, it was, <coughs> excuse me, but it was different because Ken would open his Bible and sing from the Psalms. Uh, and then he would pray. And, I w- and it was so disarming. That's the wonderful thing about Christ, isn't it? You know, you don't have to push and force your view on people. It says, let the Holy Spirit do it. We just need to do what he tells us to do and obey. She says, it was still very disarming. But I couldn't help going back. And it was in this context of hospitality that Ken brought the church to me. Because it was impossible for me to get to church without the bridge of using his home. Oh, yes, the Bible is an amazing book. And I had never read it. I was, more, I was more than happy to criticize a book I'd never read. I'm a bookish kind of gal. Uh, the Bible really gets inside of you. And it made me confront some really haunting things. It made me face a whole category of sin, both mine and other people's. It made me think about my own past, my childhood, my parents, my previous Catholic faith. And after a while, I would think, you know, I'm busy. I don't want this. And then I'd stop showing up, and I'd stop answering email, and Ken would gently pursue me. He'd pop over with a loaf of bread that Floyd had made, or a book that we were talking about. We did exchanges. And when I would try to slip away, he would gently come back and check on me and tell me he missed me. She goes on to write a book about her, you know, her conversion uh, experience. The book is The Secret Thoughts of an Unlikely Convert. And here's the question that they put to her in this interview. Could you, could you explain some of the secret thoughts you had when you, why you were an unlikely convert? And here's Rosaria Butterf- Butterfield's answer. She said, I considered myself an atheist, having rejected my Catholic childhood and what I perceived to be superstitions and illogic of the historic Christian faith. I found Christians to be difficult, sour, fearful, intellectually unengaged people. In addition... Since the age of 28, I had lived in a monogamous lesbian re- uh, relationships and, uh, politi- and politically supported LGBT causes. I co-authored S- Syracuse University's first successful domestic partnership policy while working there as a professor, professor of English and women's studies. And I was terrified to converse on any level with a worldview that called my, me, my life, my community, my scholarly interest, my relationship, sin. Add to this, I was working on a book exposing the religious right from a lesbian uh, uh, feminist point of view. I approached the Bible with an agenda to tear it down because I firmly believed that it was threatening, dangerous, and irrational. But when I came to Christ, I experienced what Thomas Chalmers called the expulsive power of a new affection. And at the time of my confession, excuse me, conversion, My lesbian identity and feelings did not vanish. And as my union with Christ grew, the sanctification that had birthed put a wedge between me, or excuse me, between my old self and my new one. In time, this contradiction exploded, and I was able to claim full identity with Christ alone. Here's a question. How has your conversion to Christianity been received by your former colleagues? At the time of my conversion, my colleagues and students treated me with suspicion and confusion. Understandably, many friends felt betrayed, exposed, and criticized by my conversion 
and the changes in my heart and life. And writing that, and writing that this, the, and the writings that this produced. And when a person comes to Christ and repents of sin, this turning around makes enemies of former allies. And while this aftershock eventually led to Bible studies and many opportunities to share the gospel, but it also destroyed friendships and allegiances. The exclusivity of Christ has rugged consequences. God's changing lives. And you know, in that transformation process, it's not easy, is it? Sometimes it's very difficult. Even be warlike. Many of us have discovered that to a certain degree, haven't we? You come to Christ. Old friends, old relationships, even sometimes family relationships can be taxed very heavily. And some of those who were once maybe even very good friends Uh, They may have not want anything to do with us again. But again, um, that's what happens. That is a part of making a decision for Christ. There may be losses, but I think the the gain far outweighs any loss that you and I may have to experience. You know, when Paul was writing to the Corinthians, in, in second, uh, First Corinthians, uh, some of the very issues that we're talking about in our text today, he was dealing with. I mean, he was surrounded by a sea of immorality. And, and here's what uh, Paul writes in Second Corinthians chapter six, verse nine. You don't have to turn there. I'll read it quickly. He says, "Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither fornicators, this is heterosexual, nor idolaters." nor adulterers, that's heterosexual sin as well, nor homosexuals or sodomites, nor thieves or covetous, nor drunkards, revilers, extortioners will inherit the kingdom of God. And I love what he says here in verse 11 because it puts it all in context. He says, such were some of us. Such were some of us, but we have been washed. We have been sanctified. And you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. That's why we can relate to people out there. We're not better than anybody. We sure are better off. We're better off because of Jesus and what He's done for us, that He's brought us into relationship with Himself. Oh, may God help us to reach out. You know, the Holy Spirit can help you and I to bridge gaps that could never, ever be bridged otherwise. Because he's the reconciler. Remember it says he's given to us the ministry of reconciliation. That's the ministry of bridge building. It's like the, the, the lyric to that song, there's nothing too dirty that he can't make worthy. I forget the rest of it, but I remember that part. That's the good part. Nobody beyond the pale, the scope of the grace of God 
Isn't it interesting? He has, he has heroes of faith that murder people. Moses, David. There's even a su suggestion that Paul had, well, Paul was right there when Stephen was being stoned. These are some of the highliners of the Bible. Because not predicated upon our goodness, we've been made righteous by the blood of Jesus. And I've often, I've seen people out there. I've, you know, I've told you my testimony many times. I come from a very dysfunctional family. And even some of that dysfunction um, my mom committed suicide. My father died an alcoholic. My sister died at 46 years old from heroin. Her son was shot down by a Philadelphia policeman at 30 years old. His brother, it's his second time in prison down in Philadelphia. And if it wasn't for the grace of God, God only knows where I would have ended up. But isn't that true of all of us? He, he reaches down to, to pull us out of. <laughs> I think of some of the decisions I made before Christ. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> Amazingly stupid. And I've come to realize that I, and I think this is true of you too. We're being saved every day. It's not a matter of heaven and hell. It's a matter of stupid decisions and their consequences. <laughs> okay, we need to wrap this up here, guys. <clears throat> I think some Christians at different times, not all, certainly not all, uh, have looked at homosexuals as deplorable, unredeemable, unforgivable, let me ask you this. Is homosexuality the unpardonable sin? No. Who had the greater sin? This young boy, Matthew Shepard, or the angry man that murdered him? Obviously, the angry man that murdered him. And I'm not suggesting he was a Christian. Not at all. So looking at these last few verses, I don't want to read that list again, I'll tell you that right now. But as we consider this list, what we're looking at is many of the values of modern man. And let us not forget, too, that we are sinners and we have discovered, we have found the grace of God, the mercy of God. I want to end with this thought. When we consider the cost of the sexual revolution, the price tag, folks, has been very, very high. It's measured in broken hearts, broken homes, fatherless children, broken vows, moral depravity of an entire society, venereal disease on a pandemic scale, 60 million aborted children, and gender confusion that now begins in grade school 
And that's not even mentioning the death and the suicide. We have hope. We have the answer. Let's not be as what Rosario Butterfield described of Christianity, unengaged. Let's pray for opportunities to reach out to our, to our culture, to our society. You know what's going on in the world today and in America? It either ends up, there's only, there's only two answers. It ends up in judgment or it ends up at the cross. And when we come to the cross, there's absolute and utter forgiveness. New freedom. Are you not thankful for what God has done in your thought life, in your heart? The changes that he has wrought. To God be the glory, great things he has done. As we close, and considering what we've been speaking about this morning, by and large, this may not be your issue. At least maybe not in a homosexual sense. Although the whole area of, of sexual temptation has been so tortured in our culture and in our society. If you have any relative or any friend, anybody you know, that you want to pray for them, and bring them before the Lord, that maybe perhaps you would have an opportunity to speak with them. You know, I think when it comes to these kind of, this kind of issue that many people think, not just with the, the area of, of sexuality, but they think, I can't change. So, so therefore, I'm not even going to try. And of course, they may have tried to do that. But we try to do that without God. No matter what the issue is. Whether it's even heterosexual issues. Without him, we cannot change. But with him, there is power. If you know anybody that needs prayer in this way, I'd like to have you stand right now as we pray for these folks, for these issues. And Heavenly Father, we come to you this morning. Lord, we realize that these are, Lord, the very issues of life in our world today. And maybe perhaps even some of us have had a, ba a background in that particular way. Maybe we struggled with, and maybe even today. Sometimes those attractions don't go away. But we know the grace of God 
can strengthen us, can enable us just to continue to walk with you. We pray, Father, for we pray for our American society. Lord, these things have, have, have been accepted. Lord, we see so many, even little children, and parents facilitating their gender confusion. It's sad. It's heartbreaking. It's heartbreaking because, Lord, they don't have you. They don't have the answer. So, Heavenly Father, I pray that you would give us, Lord, a heart of compassion. Lord, help us, we pray, to reach out without accusing, without pointing a finger. Lord, many of us have been, we have been loved, been given truth and loved into the kingdom. And so I pray, Father, that you'd help us to do that. And we pray, Father, for these friends or loved ones, Lord, that are struggling with these very issues. Lord, give us, we pray, a, a, just a, a heart. Lord, your heart. Lord, your compassion. And when, Lord, they call us haters because we have a different viewpoint, help us, we pray, not to respond in kind. Lord, you went as a lamb to the slaughter. You were God in the flesh. You came and you did nothing but give truth and love and miracles. You were hung on a cross and accused of all kinds of wrong things. Lord, we're not haters and you know that. We're lovers of the truth. But Lord, help us to remember that people need to, to see that love. Experience it, Lord. At times when it's very difficult and we're not able to do it. Lord, may you do it through us. And Father, if we stand here this morning as well, maybe even, Lord, secretly, we're standing up for an issue in our own life. Lord, we give that to you. Help us, Lord. We're weak. You have grace and strength. You have the power to transform and change us. And even though, Lord, you have that power, that doesn't always happen overnight. Lord, it's a process. It's a process of following after you. Lord, looking to you, trusting you. Knowing that you're the creator. And as David said in his psalm of repentance, Create in me, O God, a new heart. Lord, we thank you that word means to create something out of nothing. Lord, recreate in us to have a heart, Lord, like you. In Jesus' name, amen.